Okay, it is November 2023, this month, Amplified. We are back with David Gritz and Teresa Blissing. How's everybody doing, by the way? It's winter in New York, isn't it? But David, you're you're on a beach somewhere, yeah? I am. I'm actually in Grand Cayman at the Cayman's Captive Conference for a bright and sunny day of 84 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. I mean, I'm in 33 degrees Celsius every single day. You can see it. Like, I'm tanned. I don't even want to be. But Teresa, I feel bad for because it's probably like four degrees in New York. Yeah, right I just now. wanted to say I'm really jealous of both of you right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, look, the world's going through a bunch of different things right now. I want to talk about open AI. And frankly, if we were talking about this a week ago, I think we would have had a very, very different conversation. But I do think it's important to react to this, to what happened initially and then to what happened after that, because I think it's a, I think it leads into some other stuff. David, do you want to give your opinion on this to start? Sure. So I guess for those who have uh, had their head in the sand and haven't been watching the OpenAI debacle, the kind of brief story behind it is uh, Sam Altman, who used to be an executive at Y Combinator, uh, was one of the co-founders of OpenAI from the very beginning. OpenAI kind of scaled and got a tremendous amount of investment from Microsoft. And they are actually a nonprofit organization that's a holding company of a for-profit organization, which is a joint venture with Microsoft that owns 49%. But being their nonprofit organization, they have to have a board. The board decides which executives are in or out. Uh, they had decided essentially over the end of a week that Sam Altman should no longer be the CEO with very little explanation given to the public and almost no notice from what we heard uh, on, from other sources. It was you know less than an hour's notice given to the executives at Microsoft that invested billions of dollars into the company that uh, Sam would no longer be the CEO. His uh, team or company rallied 700 people, essentially signed a petition that they're uh, willing to leave the company if Sam's not let back in. There was a, a, a brief moment where Sam was actually, and many of his team members went to work for Microsoft. And then uh, there was more or less a coup of the board. The board was restructured. And then uh, Sam was let back in to be the CEO of the company. So starting from that background, I would say, you know, this represents a few things. But I think the, the most important thing from my perspective is the significance of having a independent board that has a long-term view of a company and the implications of what they do and a deep understanding of the role of a chief executive officer within a startup company. And just from my perspective, being a VC and, and being heavily involved in startup ecosystems, generally the data shows that having an original founder CEO is almost necessary to the successful execution of a business model. Yeah. And the general reason for that is because most startups are complete chaos and you need a charismatic, daring, and you know, almost maniacally focused leader to be able to drive the company forward. And most startup companies don't have a complete vision. They have a partial vision, a started vision, or 
some version of that. And it's the founder or the chief executive officer that is able to drive that vision and bring things to reality. So this is much different than a established company that has controls, levers, and history in place where a vision may not be necessary because you're just executing on annual or you know couple year plans against and you have all of the pieces in place that essentially can just be repeated over time but the core growth of the company has already been accomplished my question now here is do we classify open ai as still being a startup so there's a lot of ways to look at it. I think if you look at it in a pure sense and say, you know, a startup is a couple people in, in their garage, then no, you wouldn't classify it as a startup. But if you classify a startup as if you look at, we'll call it an asymptote, right? So the starting point is like when the growth is starting and then there's kind of the straightening part and then it starts to kind of decline and then slowly actually decrease right so i think if you think about that as a growth curve the part that looks mostly straight is from my perspective still considered a startup when it starts to uh slow down or flatten off and become more mature then i would say you know then maybe it's re reached maturity so from a broad definition you know high growth company that is still defining what it, it wants to be when it grows up. I think you could say that it's a startup if you want to define it much more purely in terms of, you know, revenue, number of employees, I would say it's probably a more mature company. Can, can I suggest that we need maybe a different word to classify these kinds of companies? That maybe startup isn't the right way to do it. Maybe it is like a fast growth company. Either that or we just have to agree on what you said, right? Because I understand what Teresa's saying too. Like his grab a startup, it's been around for 12 years but kind of still talks about, about itself like it is one. And OpenAI has been around since 2015. So maybe we just need to reclassify the way we talk about some of these companies. But I will agree with you on this, is that building a company from scratch is just complete chaos. Everything's a maybe. And unless you have somebody in charge and that person cannot be hired, they have to be the founder and the CEO, which is why the conversations with them are so interesting, right? Because they know everything's a maybe and they spend 95% of their time trying to tell everybody that they know exactly what they're doing. Maybe a, a term I would use is a gazelle because, you know, it's it's running quickly. Um, it has, you know, some smaller animals it could go after. But at the end of the day, when um, the puma, the lion or the cheetah comes along, it's not it's mincemeat, so to speak. So maybe that's a effective thing. It's it's not a unicorn, but it's a gazelle. I mean, it could still be a gazelle with a unicorn horn, but Maybe that's a term that we could use. I'm tired of unicorns. Teresa, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually, I like the term, but again, like looking back at, you know, open an eye and the impact it has made globally and, you know, the importance it is playing in, in, in so many industries and so many, you know, enabling um, so many more startups. I think it's not minced meat anymore. And um, I absolutely agree with David on, you know, having founders on board is crucial, but I also think at some point a company can reach a point where maybe that founder is not suited anymore. And it depends a little bit on the um, you know, personality and, and what drives a founder, right? So I do think companies can reach a point where 
the original founder might not be the best person anymore as the CEO. Um, and, you know, there are other ways to still be involved as, you know, chairman, um, et cetera. But I'm not sure if this is really the case with OpenAI. Um, just, you know, in general, I think there is a point when companies reach a certain, you know, size and maturity um, that sometimes a leadership change can make sense. So my perfect example of this is Google. When Larry Page and Sergey Brin were still young, they looked around and said, we're growing really fast and we have no idea what to do. And this thing's going to blow up unless we hire Eric Schmidt. And they went out and hired Eric Schmidt, who ran the company for, I don't know, pick a number, 10 years, before those guys grew up enough and said, we don't need you anymore. Once the growth really starts, and then they need like to have professional management come in, even if those founders stay around, which is kind of what you're suggesting as well, Teresa, they put a CEO in front of them, and then they learn how to be the CEO if they want to be. Like being a CEO is not a panacea. To be fair, it's a, it's a bad job. So, Michael, I think that's definitely accurate. But I think in the case of OpenAI, the challenge with governance is, you know, the decision to bring in Eric at Google was a decision between the board and management. Correct. So the founders wanted this to happen and they agreed on it and it was a plan. With OpenAI, it was like, well, let's Sam go and, you know, we have utter chaos at the company. So it kind of demonstrates the importance to my original point of long-term thinking, because if the long-term thinking is, you know, Sam may not be mature enough to run the company at this stage, then ultimately it's like, who is? Let's get them involved or a panel of possible people involved, have Sam agree to it and then have his new role defined. So you're an investor, right? So you must sit on a bunch of boards, no? So not yet. Uh, we're usually kind of smaller investors okay. in the cap table, but for our new up and coming fund. I'm sure you've thought about this. I was doing some research before we started this conversation. It looks like the board of directors from an experience standpoint, right? I don't know about background standpoint, but just from a business experience standpoint for open AI, we're all like in their mid thirties, except for one person who was in their early forties. And all of them were kind of had the same experience so that there was no diversity of opinion there at all. And none of them really were experienced enough. Like, I think the people on the board of directors should be in their 50s and 60s because they've seen like 15 different cycles, if you know what I mean. So I'm curious what you think, David, about the way boards should be constructed and how different like each one of the individual members should be so that you don't always have a bunch of yes men and you're getting consensus over time, not just the same opinion. Sure. So, I mean, for startups, boards serve a number of different roles. I mean, the number one most important role is to protect the shareholders' capital and to advance, you know, the vision of the company. But beyond that, the other roles that they serve, depending on the company, is mentorship for the management and executive team. Not quite, you know, the helicopter parents, but more, you know, the grandparents that have, exactly. to your point, the experience they can come in. And, you know, sometimes, you know, management's more willing to listen to the grandparents than the helicopter parents. And then the third role that they serve is ultimately they need to be enablers. So they need to bring something to the table, whether it's, you know, access to new customers, relationships. advice on, yeah, relationships, product uh, development expertise, 
um, or even, you know, support in building out the next roles in the company. So there has to be some kind of like functional value. Those are the three kind of primary roles of a board. But if you go back to the first one, right, like the most important is to establish governance. So I would put somewhat of a caveat. I would say, yes, like having, you know, executives that have been through a number of business cycles is important to have them in a board. There's a couple of challenges sometimes depending on the company, there's only a limited ability to attract a certain level of talent. So I think it depends on that. Given OpenAI's potential, they could probably have almost anyone on their board. So I would say that's not an issue here. But I agree with you. Generally, it should be people that should have more experience. I don't necessarily think age is the driving factor. And here's what I would say, right? Like, let's say someone's in their 60s and, you know, the only role that they ever had was as a politician for their entire life. Sure. Um, but they've never been involved in the commercial sector. They could be helpful, but they're not going to be as helpful as someone who's been in the commercial sector. So I would say um, I would measure experience more in terms of the types of things that they've done, what other startups or established companies have they been on the board of, what other crises have they handled or been involved in. And probably more important than anything else is like, what knowledge and expertise do they bring to the table that demonstrates that they can properly govern in that specific industry or company, right? So if you put like an oil exec into OpenAI, that's probably not gonna be as relevant than someone that has you know technology experience or at least has exposure or connection to that industry. Fair enough. Yeah, I wasn't using age as the defining factor just as a way of measuring like length of experience. So Sam Altman is back, right? He's back at OpenAI. He's back being the CEO. They called him like a day later. Is this an example of like the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated kind of thing? I mean, you know, companies make mistakes all the time. I mean, this was a righted mistake. Uh, so I think that's definitely positive and, and maybe it's not worth it to dwell tremendously on it because, you know, OpenAI is probably fine now. But I think it's just important to understand you know, each time a crisis happens, you can look into it and see like, what clues does it tell us about where we are as a society or where we are um, in general, in terms of like how we manage companies. So yeah. I think OpenAI is a pretty unique one, given its partial nonprofit nature and how quickly it raised a lot of capital. Um, but I think this is going to be one of those, you know, case studies for Harvard students and, and other MBAs to really look at. Um, and the story is not going to be told for another couple of years when we see how it all plays out. I, I wanted to kind of add an insurance angle here because we did talk about the directors of this business and the officers. And there is a whole directors and officers insurance angle, I think, at some level. I'm always curious, like what their liability is and if it's even worth talking about. So, I mean, ultimately, for liability to exist, there has to be harm, right? So, I mean, in, in any lawsuit, there has to be some kind of damage to an aggrieved party that has standing. So I would say um, in this case, like there was no harm, like the company resolved itself, everything is fine, but there could have been tremendous harm. And I mean, given that Microsoft was such a large shareholder, yeah ultimately they would probably be the ones initiating the suit um but given what happened where sam actually went to work there 
maybe not because then the argument would be you know well sam's at microsoft yeah yeah, who was harmed so i think in this case it's not the perfect example of what may have happened but you could definitely imagine a suit happening if if it did spiral out of control and all the value was lost Teresa, do you want to talk about this in the context of the larger capitalism conversation that we were having before, right? I mean, again, we, you, you've, you've mentioned this before, this idea of like, are you trying to do good and make money at the same time? And is that even possible anymore? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the whole construct of OpenAI, which, you know, first started as a nonprofit, but then, you know, being a nonprofit obviously makes it difficult to attract investors, which you need to build what you know, the team that OpenAI has built. So they, you know, have now this structure of having a kind of for-profit business, uh, you know, David explained that earlier, where the profits are, you know, simply capped and you have this board, not of shareholders, but, um, you know, to run this kind of non-profit, which is not really entirely non-profit, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, that is just the question. And, you know, one of the reasons... This whole Sam Altman um, story started was that they were worried that this would be a threat to humanity, Um, which, you know, also sounds scary. But it also shows that trying to do something nonprofit that benefits everyone, right, is just simply not possible in, you know, the world we live in today, you need to, you know, have big names on board, like, you know, OpenAI with with Microsoft now. And, um, you know, you just need to have a for-profit component if you want to reach, you know, the growth and the opportunities that OpenAI has achieved. And we are seeing something similar in the insurance industry, right? So if we are looking at um, you know, what we talked about in previous months with companies pulling out of markets like Florida and California um, because it's not profitable business for them anymore. And you need to raise the question, isn't there, you know, a responsibility to make insurance accessible, especially for lower income groups, right? That's the whole way insurance started in the first place. But, you know, in a world where, everything is for profit, that's simply not possible, or at least not as easy. I think that's the conversation we had. David, I want to get your commentary on this as well. But have we reached a point where some of these companies are so profitable that their best interest is served by having them create even more profit for themselves? So that I feel, I feel like we're really at like a tipping point. I call it late stage capitalism. Because I feel like there's so much focus on profit and growth, 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 that a lot of that responsibility that you're talking about is left out when it's completely possible to do both of those things at the same time. And the other thing that I'm curious about is, is there another example of something like OpenAI where there was a nonprofit that also built a subsidiary or a sister company that was a profitable enterprise? And what's the impact of those two things? So I'll take your questions in in reverse order. There is an example of a nonprofit that I would say is very similar to OpenAI. So um, that's Linux Foundation. If you think about it, it's an operating system that competed with, you know, Microsoft. And the whole idea was that you could 
have a great number of people working on this to make a tremendously powerful and useful operating system. There were a number of spin-offs, whether it's Red Hat um, or other kind of development uh, capabilities that were specific and used in different purposes, whether it was servers or others. And I think, you know, Linux is probably like one of the, the most successful examples of a nonprofit that built a really great operating system and had these like for-profit offshoots where people built, you know, packaged versions of the operating system for different use cases. And I think, you know, OpenAI in theory could be like that. Um, the functional difference between Linux and OpenAI or even some of the more recent ones like R3, which is a blockchain uh, consortium, is that even though it's literally called OpenAI, you can build, you know, apps on it, but it's not open source software. It's a closed proprietary algorithm that is essentially built by a limited group of people that you know are part of one fixed organization right. so that is a fundamental difference because on linux like there are literally people just it's volunteering source. their time yeah it's open yeah source. so um i would say they're similar and it demonstrates that this can definitely be a successful model but in the same sense they are functionally different in terms of how they were created contributed to and and went to market in terms in terms of the late stage capitalism perspective, it's an interesting thought, like what is late stage capitalism? Because a lot of people think about capitalism from the standpoint of competition and what I would say, like the original vision from the invisible hand was all about and the benefits that come from that. But they don't necessarily think about what capitalism actually is right so if you think about it capitalism is a division between labor and the people that have capital that can provide it it's to name, either yeah. support labor or equipment but the natural evolution of capitalism in any system like imagine that you're running a simulation for 10,000 years or even a thousand years the ultimate end of all capitalist systems is a few oligopolies and monopolies that have essentially aggregated all of the capital and have control over as much labor as possible. Yeah. The only way to have capitalism in the way that I think people think of it in the popular society or, you know, all the benefits of it is to ultimately like restart the system. And we've been really fortunate as a global economy or even, you know, specifically in, in the Western world that, the evolution of technology has created new industries. And by definition, the new industries go through the capitalism evolution. So you think semiconductors, there used to be thousands of them. Now that's like AMD, NVIDIA and Intel, right? And, and you know, Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung and a few others, right? And, but if you think about like all the other examples, it used to be- um, It used to be 100 America, car companies as well, right? Yeah, Just 100 in the US. car companies. There used to be water utilities that competed with each other. Um, you know, there used to be also, you know, back in the 1890s, electric car companies. So I think people want to champion capitalism and want to love it, which is, is just great. But they don't want to accept the quote unquote dark side or the natural evolution 
evolution of capitalism. And I think the only way that we can get more of what we want is to accept capitalism for what it is. And then if we want to create the beginnings of it again, we have to create a system that ultimately causes these large companies to fall and then new ones to start and a new system to start again without having to like invent wholesale new industries. Right. And also without having the Bolshevik revolution, right? I mean, because that's usually what happens when too much capital is concentrated in too much power. Right. Because ultimately, right, like the the end of capitalism is, you know, basically a divergence where you have super wealthy elite and super poor laborers that just serve them. Yeah, and that that has always ended up not being sustainable. I mean, that's you can go back to the French Revolution as well and just have people going, you know, let them eat cake, they're not going to eat cake. It's just not going to happen. Is there anything else we want to talk about in relation to OpenAI or do we want to move on a little bit? I think we could move on. I would just yeah. say it's like, you know, key takeaways I would see from Open. AI is like, you know, recognizing the importance of long-term thinking and understanding implications of a board and, and acknowledging the fact that, you know, nothing's perfect, but, you know, you have to work through crisis and that's part of the evolution of any company. Okay. Can we also talk about this story between Allianz and Revolut? Teresa, maybe you want to run through this a little bit and then we can give opinions on it too. Revolut, the, the neobank that uh, I think started in the UK, um, but operates more or less globally um, today, they are offering to their like premium customers um, a you know complimentary um, travel insurance um, that was provided by Allianz since early 2020. Okay. Um, in May, the Revolut made the decision to move this to cover genius um, um, to cover that um, travel insurance part, right? And Allianz is apparently now suing Revolut over 13 million US dollars um, for breach uh, of contract. But what is also interesting is that Revolut only had that partnership with cover genius for about six months because earlier this month on 13 November, um, they started switch their travel insurance provider again to shop, which, you know, just sounds really messy. And also the the question is, I mean, there's not enough information to really understand what is happening. But from my view, I think it could be one of the two. Either it's an integration issue, um, which, you know, we have a lot in, in, in embedded insurance, or we start to see a bidding war starting on large scale embedded insurance opportunities because you know embedded insurance has been one of the the hypes in insurance for at least the last year and um you know looking at revolut and looking at what we have seen in bank assurance before where huge premiums are paid for partnerships between insurers and um, banks for for bank insurance right um, and I wonder if that is also maybe the case that Revolut just had better options for partners that, you know, may <laughs> provide it. But this is a really interesting insight that you've had, I think, because I hadn't thought about it in these terms, right? Essentially, what you're suggesting is that Allianz goes to Revolut and says, we need to go all the way back to 2019 and one of my favorite buzzwords, right? Alternative forms of distribution for embedded insurance, right? What you're suggesting is that 
everybody wanted it and that Revolut was looked like a big opportunity. And then Cover Genius came around and said, well, that's our whole business. So we'll actually pay you more, whether it's a commission or a premium or whatever it is. And maybe you're right. Maybe there's some integration problems. But then somebody else came along and offered even more. This is a really interesting concept. But again, that's just, you know, speculation. There's not enough information out there. But it's just really odd that, you know, since April 2020, there are three different providers um, of travel insurance for, um, for Revolut users. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Dave, Dave, what do you think? So I think it, that Teresa is probably right that it's more the bidding war than the integration because if the integration yeah. was a problem, it would probably end a lot sooner. I mean, maybe that's the reason why the cover genius thing didn't work out, but <laughs> I would say it's probably the bidding war because another place that I've seen this in the embedded insurance space is actually in retail extended warranties so in the u.s you have extend yep. there used to be clyde which is now cover genius um and moldberry are kind of the, the primary ones there are some you know startup ones that are very specific like aco which is cell phone uh Surebrite, which is also in that space but more of an emerging player and essentially this happens right like I don't know the exact amount, but Extend's like big client was Peloton and they paid them several million dollars just to have this partnership with Peloton. And that wasn't the only one that they paid. They actually paid them in advance, almost like, you know, you go to the supermarket, you want to have Tide at eye level, you're going to pay to have that spot. Same thing. And I think that, you know, frankly, this is very unhealthy because you're essentially using um, inorganic venture capital dollars to pay to make a partnership happen that may or may not work in the market. Instead, it would be better if they just decided, like, let's figure out how to, you know, together go after the market as best we can, opposed to, you know, let's say building the balance sheet of Peloton at the expense of Extend. Yes. Yeah, correct. It's not it's not really about, you know, what's what's the best product for the customer. It's not about, you know, who got the best integration, the best user journey. Um, but you know, these models are purely about, you know, who pays the most um to make this partnership happen. And I also think it's unhealthy and it's also unhealthy in a way for the insurer, because um, you know, having paid so much for a partnership, um, there's also a power imbalance in a way, right? That they got themselves into. Um, and they just become sales junkies, right? Yeah. What happens to the policies, Teresa? So, right. So if Allianz is working with Revolut and they issue policies through it, and then Revolut just says, never mind. Like when it comes time for, you know, reinstating those policies or all that kind of, like what happens? That's a good question. Well, I've, I have a Revolut account and um, a few months ago, I actually received an email that I had to sign up for the CoverX platform, which again, you know, is not a great user journey. So this is part of my, you know, premium Revolut account. Um, and suddenly in order to get the insurance benefits, I have to sign on to another platform. Um, so that was, you know, my, my, my first observation. But now I might have missed it, but I can't recall having you know received other information and you know again that's just like an add-on to the you know premium service i have with revolut which 
you know, travel insurance was not the reason I, I, I did that. It's more like, you know, living internationally and, and taking the benefits from what Revolut Bank is providing. But, you know, it's just a clunky experience if, you know, you're not even sure who is the provider. And I believe from a user experience perspective, you know, I shouldn't be caring about who provides the insurance. My go-to should be Revolut and everything, you know, should be, you know, accessible within Revolut and I mean, not Isn't the whole idea that embedded insurance <laughs> is meant to be frictionless, seamless and blah, blah, yeah, blah. Correct. Like you shouldn't even know that it's there. You yeah. should just have it no matter what, right? Correct. Correct. So, um, yeah, I don't know how they make the switch now. Um, I should have logged into my, um, you know, X cover again, but I already forgot the password <laughs> because again, it's not a great user journey if you have to get out of the you know initial yeah. partner platform onto another platform um yeah sounds terrible so I think good design this story in general shows that you know embedded insurance was supposed to be you know the panacea for distribution and one the technical part of it is significantly harder than i would say most other insurance challenges being tackled right now yeah. and the second thing is it's not necessarily better for customers, which was the whole point of it. So it really begs the question is like, you know, a lot of predictions are saying, you know, 70 billion in premium through embedded insurance by 2030. Is that really a realistic number? Or is it just, you know, figment of the imaginations of the people who have embedded, invested in embedded insurance companies? Maybe. Maybe. That's a good question. So there's this article out there, right, that Tesla says they're going to sue their Cybertruck owners if they resell it in their first year of ownership. So the Cybertruck is something that was announced in 2019. It was supposed to be $39,900, which was always a pipe dream. And now what they're saying as well is they're adding it to their owner manual, I think, this idea that says that you can't sell it in your first year, which to me is amazing. Like if I buy a hamburger at McDonald's and I just give it to Teresa, she should be able to eat it. Like I don't think Mickey D should have a say over who eats my hamburger. The same way I don't think that Tesla should have a say over who owns my Tesla. Anyway, Teresa, what do you think about this? Well, I think there are, you know, several perspectives to to that. And also, I mean, how cars and, you know, especially EVs in, 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 the, in that case um, are being sold now and how they are building ties with their customers, right? They, the um, Cybertruck also comes with the full... Uh, autopilot, which you have to buy in a subscription for, I think it's $199 a month, <laughs> so, which is again, like, you know, previously you bought, you bought a car and, you know, you, 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 you just had it. There was like no subscription model. Um, that also becomes interesting if you add insurance into the mix, right? So, because once these companies, you know, offer these subscriptions, it's easy to add like, you know, insurance on top of that. I kind of understand the thinking behind, you know, the ban on reselling it within the first year. I mean, this is something um, other companies, if you look at the luxury brands, right? And um, I might have done that um, before. If you look at the Hermes Birkenbag, right? right. Which has a long wait time um, yep. to get it. So you can't just walk into a store and buy it, right? Similar to the Cybertruck. So what happens is people buy these bags, I've, you know, I've been on a wait list and then immediately resell it on a profit. And, you know, that's a profit that Hermes in that case 
is not benefiting from. And I, you know, wonder if Tesla has seen this happening in other industries and, you know, wants to avoid this, you know, products being immediately sold off for profit where they are not participating in, right? And hence they have an option to actually, you can sell the car back to Tesla and then, you know, Tesla can again sell it and benefit from that profit. Sure. To build on what you're saying, Teresa, it is not unheard of. Um, so first, for Tesla itself, um, this has happened to them several times. So I actually have a friend who bought a Model X and his entire purpose of buying it was I'll drive it for a few months and resell it for more than I paid for. Ultimately, for him, it, it didn't work out perfectly. He sold it for slightly less. Um, but depending on where you were in that timeline, there was actually a period of time where you could buy, you know, if you were early enough on the wait list for the Roadster, for the Model X, yep. um, that you would have made a profit. So I think Tesla has witnessed that. And to Teresa's point, like they don't want to be excluded, but I think it's actually more than that. So the most common use of this tactic is actually with music concerts, right? So if you think about it, like there's there's generally an accepted principle that scalping is not good for the artist. and But it's actually more than that. It's not good for the consumer, right? Because if you have someone with enough purchasing power that they can buy up all the stock of the tickets, then essentially they can sell the tickets at a much higher price than the artist wants. And the artist wants to create a dynamic where, you know, the best fans try really hard to get the tickets and they can get it at a price that they can afford. They don't want, you know, I'll call it, faux fans buying up tickets and then selling it to people that could care less about the artist but have you know friends to entertain so i think tesla is probably looked at the music industry and said you know in in whatever perspective they have maybe some level of arrogance that you know tesla is like a, a music festival and you know we want to have the experience given to the people who truly want it and you know there's a certain number of people that can afford it and we don't want the you know private equity to just buy up a ton of teslas and then you know dump on the market a lot more expensive so right i think that's probably the dynamic they're trying to create but i think you know fundamentally a car is not a music festival or a concert. A concert or a music festival usually happens over a limited period of time. And it's a brief experience that only a certain amount of people could have. A car could be produced, you know, ultimately to 100% of the demand and exactly to the people that want it. So I think it's a, a mismatch in analogies here. I agree. And if you and this is the this gets back to the conversation we were having before about late stage capitalism, right? It's just that who has the resources and then who has the resources left to buy this stuff. But but you're right. You can only fit 75,000 people into like a stadium. And those are the only people that can see the concert. But a car company can just producing more and more and more, which means that even if you bought one in September and expect, expect to sell it in November, if they made 10,000 more of them, then 10,000 more people can buy them. So the supply and demand dynamic should be able to be controlled by the car company. I don't think it's analogous, as you say. So I agree with you. I think we're going to keep having more conversations about OpenAI as well. Like, I don't think this is the last time we're going to talk about this. I think we're going to more and more and more talk about artificial intelligence on these calls. I don't think there's any way we can get away from it. 
And I want to thank both of you, Teresa Bliss and David Gritz, for doing this again. This is one of my favorite monthly conversations. It's not even close. Thank you both.